Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 4 God and Comparative Religion Part 3 in other words, there is something in the whole tone of the time suggesting that men had accepted a lower level, and still were half-conscious that it was a lower level. It is hard to find words for these things, yet the one really just word stands ready. These men were conscious of the fall, if they were conscious of nothing else. And the same is true of all heathen humanity. Those who have fallen may remember the fall even when they forget the height. Some such tantalizing blank or break in memory is at the back of all pagan sentiment. There is such a thing as the momentary power to remember that we forget. And the most ignorant of humanity know by the very look of earth that they have forgotten heaven. But it remains true that even for these men there were moments, like the memories of childhood, when they heard themselves talking with a simpler language. There were moments when the Roman, like Virgil in the line already quoted, cut his way with a sword stroke of song out of the tangle of the mythologies. The motley mob of gods and goddesses sank suddenly out of sight, and the Sky Father was alone in the sky. This latter example is very relevant to the next step in the process. A white light, as of a lost morning, still lingers on the figure of Jupiter, of Pan, or of the elder Apollo. And it may well be, as already noted, that each was once a divinity as solitary as Jehovah, or Allah. They lost this lonely universality by a process it is here very necessary to note, a process of amalgamation, very like what was afterwards called syncretism. The whole pagan world set itself to build a pantheon. They admitted more and more gods, gods not only of the Greeks, but of the barbarians, gods not only of Europe, but of Asia and Africa. The more the merrier, though some of the Asian and African ones were not very merry. They admitted them to equal thrones with their own. Sometimes they identified them with their own. They may have regarded it as an enrichment of their religious life, but it meant the final loss of all that we now call religion. It meant that ancient light of simplicity that had a single source like the sun finally fades away in a dazzle of conflicting lights and colors. God is really sacrificed to the gods. In a very literal sense of the flippant phrase, they have been too many for him. Polytheism, therefore, was really a sort of pull, in the sense of the pagans having consented to the pooling of their pagan religions. And this point is very important in many controversies, ancient and modern. It is regarded as a liberal and enlightened thing to say that the God of the stranger may be as good as our own. And doubtless the pagans thought themselves very liberal and enlightened when they agreed to add to the gods of the city or the hearth some wild and fantastic Dionysus coming down from the mountains, or some shaggy and rustic pan creeping out of the woods. But exactly what it lost by these larger ideas is the largest idea of all. It is the idea of the fatherhood that makes the whole world one.
and the converse is also true. Doubtless, those more antiquated men of antiquity who clung to their solitary statues and their single sacred names were regarded as superstitious savages, benighted and left behind. But these superstitious savages were preserving something that is much more like the cosmic power as conceived by philosophy, or even as conceived by science. This paradox by which the rude reactionary was a sort of prophetic progressive has one consequence very much to the point. In a purely historical sense, and apart from any other controversies in the same connection, it throws a light, a single and a steady light, that shines from the beginning on a little and lonely people. In this paradox, as in some riddle of religion of which the answer was sealed up for centuries, lies the mission and the meaning of the Jews. It is true in this sense, humanly speaking, that the world owes God to the Jews. It owes that truth to much that is blamed in the Jews, possibly to much that is blamable in the Jews. We have already noted the nomadic position of the Jews amid the other pastoral peoples upon the fringe of the Babylonian Empire, and something of that strange erratic course of theirs blazed across the dark territory of extreme antiquity as they passed from the seat of Abraham and the shepherd princes into Egypt, and doubled back into the Palestinian hills and held them against the Philistines from Crete, and fell into captivity in Babylon and yet again returned to their mountain city by the Zionist policies of the Persian conquerors. And so continued that amazing romance of restlessness, of which we have not yet seen the end. But through all their wanderings, and especially through all their early wanderings, they did indeed carry the fate of the world in that wooden tabernacle, that held perhaps a featureless symbol, and certainly an invisible god. We may say that one most essential feature was that it was featureless. Much as we may prefer that creative liberty which the Christian culture has declared and by which it has eclipsed even the arts of antiquity, we must not underrate the determining importance at the time of the Hebrew inhibition of images. It is a typical example of one of those limitations that did in fact preserve and perpetuate enlargement like a wall built round a wide open space. The god who could not have a statue remained a spirit. Nor would his statue in any case have had the disarming dignity and grace of the Greek statues then, or the Christian statues afterwards. He was living in a land of monsters. We shall have occasion to consider more fully what those monsters were, Moloch and Dagon and Tanit, the terrible goddess. If the deity of Israel had ever had an image, he would have had a phallic image. By merely giving him a body, they would have brought in all the worst elements of mythology, all the polygamy of polytheism, the vision of the harem in heaven. This point about the refusal of art is the first example of the limitations which are often adversely criticized, only because the critics themselves are limited. But an even stronger case can be found in the other criticism offered by the same critics. It is often said with a sneer that the God of Israel was only a God of battles. Quote, a mere barbaric Lord of hosts, end quote, pitted in rivalry against other gods 
only as their envious foe. Well it is for the world that he was a god of battles. Well it is for us that he was to all the rest only a rival and a foe. In the ordinary way, it would have been only too easy for them to have achieved the desolate disaster of conceiving him as a friend. It would have been only too easy for them to have seen him stretching out his hands in love and reconciliation, embracing Baal and kissing the painted face of Astarte, feasting in fellowship with the gods. The last god to sell his crown of stars for the Soma of the Indian pantheon, or the nectar of Olympus, or the mead of Valhalla. It would have been easy enough for his worshippers to follow the enlightened course of syncretism and the pooling of all the pagan traditions. It is obvious indeed that his followers were always sliding down this easy slope, and it required the almost demoniac energy of certain inspired demagogues who testified to the divine unity in words that are still like winds of inspiration and ruin. The more we really understand of the ancient conditions that contributed to the final culture of the faith, the more we shall have a real and even a realistic reverence for the greatness of the prophets of Israel. As it was, while the whole world melted into this mass of confused mythology, this deity, who is called tribal and narrow, precisely because he was what is called tribal and narrow, preserved the primary religion of all mankind. He was tribal enough to be universal. He was as narrow as the universe. In a word, there was a popular pagan god called Jupiter Ammon. There was never a god called Jehovah Ammon. There was never a god called Jehovah Jupiter. If there had been, there would certainly have been another called Jehovah Moloch. Long before the liberal and enlightened amalgamators had got so far afield as Jupiter, the image of the Lord of Hosts would have been deformed out of all suggestion of a monotheistic maker and ruler, and would have become an idol far worse than any savage fetish, for he might have been as civilized as the gods of Tyre and Carthage. What that civilization meant we shall consider more fully in the chapter that follows, when we note how the power of demons nearly destroyed Europe and even the heathen health of the world. But the world's destiny would have been distorted still more fatally if monotheism had failed in the Mosaic tradition. I hope in a subsequent section to show that I am not without sympathy with all that health in the heathen world that made its fairy tales and its fanciful romances of religion, but I hope also to show that these were bound to fail in the long run, and the world would have been lost if it had been unable to return to that great original simplicity of a single authority in all things. That we do preserve something of that primary simplicity that poets and philosophers can still indeed in some sense say an universal prayer, that we live in a large and serene world under a sky that stretches paternally over all the peoples of the earth, that philosophy and philanthropy are truisms in a religion of reasonable men. All that we do most truly owe, under heaven, to a secretive and restless nomadic people, who bestowed on men the supreme and serene blessing of a jealous god. The unique possession was not available or accessible to the pagan world, because it was also the possession of a jealous people. 
The Jews were unpopular, partly because of this narrowness already noted in the Roman world, partly perhaps because they had already fallen into that habit of merely handling things for exchange, instead of working to make them with their hands. It was partly also because polytheism had become a sort of jungle in which solitary monotheism could be lost. But it is strange to realize how completely it really was lost. Apart from more disputed matters, there were things in the tradition of Israel which belonged to all humanity now, and might have belonged to all humanity then. They had one of the colossal cornerstones of the world, the book of Job. It obviously stands over against the Iliad and the Greek tragedies, and even more than they, it was an early meeting and parting of poetry and philosophy in the morning of the world. It is a solemn and uplifting sight to see those two eternal fools, the optimist and the pessimist, destroyed in the dawn of time. And the philosophy really perfects the pagan tragic irony precisely because it is more monotheistic and therefore more mystical. Indeed, the book of Job avowedly only answers mystery with mystery. Job is comforted with riddles, but he is comforted. Herein is indeed a type, in the sense of a prophecy, of things speaking with authority. For when he who doubts can only say, I do not understand, it is true that he who knows can only reply or repeat, You do not understand. And under that rebuke there is always a sudden hope in the heart, and the sense of something that would be worth understanding. But this mighty monotheistic poem remained unremarked by the whole world of antiquity, which was thronged with polytheistic poetry. It is a sign of the way in which the Jews stood apart and kept their tradition unshaken and unshared, that they should have kept a thing like the book of Job out of the whole intellectual world of antiquity. It is as if the Egyptians had modestly concealed the Great Pyramid. But there were other reasons for a cross-purpose and an impasse, characteristic of the whole of the end of paganism. After all, the tradition of Israel had only got hold of one half of the truth even if we use the popular paradox and call it the bigger half. I shall try to sketch in the next chapter that love of locality and of personality that ran through mythology. Here it need only be said that there was a truth in it that could not be left out, though it were a lighter and less essential truth. The sorrow of Job had to be joined with the sorrow of Hector, and while the former was the sorrow of the universe, the latter was the sorrow of the city, for Hector could only stand pointing to heaven as the pillar of holy Troy. When God speaks out of the whirlwind, he may well speak in the wilderness. But the monotheism of the nomad was not enough for all that varied civilization of fields and fences and walled cities and temples and towns. And the turn of these things also was to come, when the two could be combined in a more definite and domestic religion. Here and there, in all that pagan crowd, could be found a philosopher whose thoughts ran on pure theism, but he never had, or supposed that he had, the power to change the customs of the whole populace. Nor is it easy, even in such philosophies, to find a true definition of this deep business of the relation of polytheism and theism. Perhaps the nearest we can come to striking the note, or giving the thing a name, 
is in something far away from all that civilization and more remote from Rome than the isolation of Israel. It is in a saying I once heard from some Hindu tradition, that gods as well as men are only the dreams of Brahma, and will perish when Brahma wakes. There is indeed in such an image something of the soul of Asia which is less sane than the soul of Christendom. We should call it despair, even if they would call it peace. This note of nihilism can be considered later in a fuller comparison between Asia and Europe. It is enough to say here that there is more of disillusion in that idea of a divine awakening than is implied for us in the passage from mythology to religion. But the symbol is very subtle and exact in one respect, that it does suggest the disproportion and even disruption between the very ideas of mythology and religion, the chasm between the two categories. It is really the collapse of comparative religion that there is no comparison between God and the gods. There is no more comparison than there is between a man and the men who walk about in his dreams. Under the next heading, some attempt will be made to indicate the twilight of that dream in which the gods walk about like men. But if anyone fancies the contrast of monotheism and polytheism is only a matter of some people having one god and others a few more, for him it will be far nearer the truth to plunge into the elephantine extravagance of Brahman cosmology, that he may feel a shudder going through the veil of things, the many-handed creators, and the throned and haloed animals, and all the network of entangled stars and rulers of the night as the awful eyes of Brahma open, like dawn upon the death of all. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>